Good morning. Um, my name is Stephanie, and I'm a member here at Redemption. And it's a pleasure to be reading God's Word to you this morning. Our reading is from Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that, as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Stephanie. All right, church, let's pray together. Father, we ask your help as we look to your word, as we look to a passage that can easily seem confusing and and even peculiar to us. We pray that you would draw on the work that we've been doing, the work that you've done through this series to help us see and understand this passage. We pray more than that, that you would use it to shape us in a spiritual way, both as individuals who are made one with Christ and together as his body, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So when people think of the church these days, they often will think first, of how messy and complicated it is. Uh, You think, for example, of that one experience they've had that really turned them off to organized religion, or they think of all the scandals that make such a bad name for churches, like sex abuse scandals and even just abusive leadership in the church, or they think of all the different denominations that exist and the many disagreements between them. What do we make of all these differences? Uh, What kind of beliefs should we divide over? And and if we divide in these ways, what does that mean? Is it okay in some cases for churches to disagree on some of these things? Uh, Did God ever intend for every local church on earth to be part of one earthly institution? Or is there a different kind of unity that binds us together whether or not we are, right? Right? And then you have all the different methods of doing church. You have mega churches and house churches. 
You have seeker-sensitive churches, edgy, hipster churches, uh, grumpy culture war churches. And increasingly, especially after COVID-19, many Christians are not really convinced that being a part of a church is is important at all because we can just kind of listen to podcasts and watch live streams, right? So we, we are very, very confused about the church. But the truth is, as we've seen in our series All this confusion about God's family on earth, how it works and what it means, is really nothing new. Today, I think we're going to see that the church has always been very complicated and messy, uh, but there is a certain kind of perspective that we need to truly appreciate it and even go about it in the way that God intends us to. See, the problems in Galatia began when a group of uh, professing Christian missionaries who were Jewish came along and they convinced the members of these churches in Galatia that the nation of Israel was God's covenant family. And therefore, as Gentiles, because they weren't Jews of Israel, uh, their faith in Jesus, they said, was not enough. If, if they, that was great, they believed in Jesus, but if they wanted to join his family, they have to actually be circumcised and they have to live under the Old Testament law. And for the past four weeks, Paul has been trying to untangle all this confusion about what it means to be part of God's family. And in particular, we've seen what it means to be a son of Abraham. Abraham is the one, the patriarch, the one who kind of began this whole endeavor of the nation of Israel uh, to begin with. And so Paul has been arguing that God is creating a new kind of spiritual family that includes people of all nations, not just one nation, not just Israel. And God is creating this new spiritual family in his son, in the resurrected body of Jesus. He has also been showing us, Paul, that in painstaking detail, that none of this is actually contrary to the Old Testament. In fact, this gospel of Jesus Christ and this body of Jesus Christ, his church, is actually the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's the entire point of God's promise to Abraham all the way back in the beginning. Last week, uh, Paul came at this argument through the angle of spiritual birth, if you remember. He talked about worrying that he had labored over these churches in vain, and he said he was again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. And that is until they're reborn, born again, if you will, in this spiritual sort of way by faith in Jesus. Then here in, in verse 21, he says, sort of zooms out, and he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And this is like a characteristically very snarky jab for Paul. We've learned a lot about Paul's personality, right? He's basically saying, oh, okay, you want to live under the law? Have you read it? Do you know what it says? Are you paying attention here? And this will be, in our passage today, Paul's final attempt to untangle this confusion in Galatia about God's spiritual family. He does this by going way, way back to the story of Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael from Genesis chapter 21. We covered this story in our series in Abraham not long ago. And here Paul makes all kinds of fascinating connections between this story in Genesis 
and the situation there in Galatia. And so to start, it's really going to help if we just briefly pause and kind of look back and think back about Genesis 21. We want to recall basically this story of Hagar and Ishmael, because if we don't do that, frankly, nothing I say today is going to make much sense at all. Okay, and so if you remember from that series on Abraham, Abraham's whole story began when God promised him that he would multiply his offspring into this great nation. And this was God's promise to sort of undo all the chaos of sin that had sort of filled the world in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. In chapter 12, he makes that promise to Abraham, and that kicks off the story of the Old Testament. Then as the story goes on, Abraham and his wife Sarah did not have any sons for like a long time, for many, many years. Even they're starting to get really old even. And so they came up with this great idea to try and make God's promise happen on their own. And as a result of this plan, Abraham had a son with their slave woman, Hagar. And the name of that son that he had with Hagar was Ishmael. And God made it very clear to Abraham in Genesis 21, no, 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 that is not the son I'm going to use to accomplish these redemptive purposes of mine. It's not. Then, years later, when God did bless Abraham and Sarah with a son miraculously named Isaac against all odds when Sarah was far too old to be having children, they sort of giggled to themselves. Do you remember this detail? They, they were so excited. They, they were like giddy with laughter. And, and, and Sarah even says, who would have said that I could have a child? And the whole point is, God, God said that the whole time. That's the point, right? And they laugh until these two boys get older. And then Sarah sees Ishmael laughing. And, and if you remember, and more than likely, he was laughing at Isaac, sort of poking at him as the younger brother, maybe taunting him. And when that happened, it's like something clicked in Sarah's brain. And she says to Abraham, you have to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. You have to cast them out. They cannot be part of this family anymore because if they are, then Ishmael is actually going to be the one that inherits everything because technically Ishmael was the firstborn son of Abraham. He would have controlled the estate. And so in Genesis 21, it says all of this displeased Abraham very much. This is his son. This is really his son. But God agrees with Sarah, and he says, no, no, you do. You need to cast out the slave woman and her son. And so he does that. He casts them out, and Ishmael's descendants then go on to to be a different nation in the story of the Old Testament and actually kind of the arch enemy of Israel. Okay? So on one hand, here in the law, which just means the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we have a literal biological son of Abraham on one hand. And on the other hand, he and his mother are actually cast out of God's covenant family, right? So clearly this family God's been raising up is not just about who is related to Abraham in a physical way. If so, then according to the flesh, Ishmael actually would have had every right to be a member of this family. In fact, according to the flesh, he would have been the firstborn son of the family. He would have controlled the whole inheritance, not Isaac. But he wasn't. Why? It's because he was the wrong kind of son. Paul says here, he was a son according to the flesh. Which is to say that he was born as a result of Abraham and Sarah trying to make God's promise happen on their own. 
His birth did not require any faith in God whatsoever. In fact, Ishmael was born because Abraham and Sarah did not have faith in God. He is the son Abraham had when Abraham tried to do Abraham's life in Abraham's way. But Isaac, on the other hand, was born, as Paul says here, according to promise. In other words, Isaac was born in a way that made it just evident. God did this. God did this. This was not just Abraham and Sarah. And so the idea is clearly not every son who's descended from Abraham is truly a heavenly son in the same way. There has always been more going on in this story God than God just raising up a family of physical people with bodies. Uh, there has always been something mysterious, always something spiritual, something heavenly happening here. And this is the claim that Paul's going to make in our passage today, is that we need this heavenly perspective of God's promised family. See, one of the biggest underlying issues with the Galatians theology was that it was not nearly transcendent enough. It had everything to do with men here on earth doing stuff. It didn't really require God in any meaningful way. It didn't require faith. It, it didn't even require Jesus Christ. And truth is, unfortunately, too often we approach the church in this same way. Not as a transcendent spiritual family that God is creating, but as an earthly religious community that we create by the power of our flesh. So I've been praying that God would use this passage even to continue revealing the heavenly significance of even local churches like ours, even what we're doing right here, right now. I was thinking this when we were singing out, just our voices singing these truths about being sons of God by faith in Christ. Would we see the heavenly significance of that today? And with that in mind, what I want to do is take a closer look with you at first Paul's argument and then Paul's appeal in our passage today. So we'll start first with Paul's argument. And his argument here is basically that we are God's heavenly children, not just his earthly children. In verse 24, Paul explains that this story of Hagar and Ishmael can be interpreted allegorically. Now, an allegory in this way is basically when one story sort of corresponds to and helps us to understand a different circumstance or, or a different story. And in this case, he says these two women, Hagar and Sarah, correspond to two covenants, covenants between God and his people. Right? You, you might think of these as the old covenant and a new covenant. And within this, this framework, Paul says, Hagar corresponds to the covenant at Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is where God famously gave the law to Moses, right? It's basically where the, the writing process of the Old Testament sort of begins, and it's certainly when Israel starts to be, form itself as an actual nation. And Paul even says that she, Hagar, corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So, Paul here is talking with this covenant about the earthly nation of Israel who was still living under the law. They had not turned to Christ and, and worshipped him as Lord and Savior. And the point is this. These Jewish believers who are still living under the law, Paul saying they are kind of like sons of God in a way, but they are sons of God in the same way that Ishmael 
was a son of God. They may be sons according to the flesh, but they are not sons according to the spirit. That covenant, Paul's saying, bears children for slavery, which makes sense. He's been saying this already, that the father has sort of set us free from this law and made us sons in the family of God when we used to be slaves. We have to understand this, though. In Paul's day, the nation of Israel was not just an idea, not at all. It's very real for Paul. It was ruled by the Roman Empire, but this Israel still had control of the promised land. They were the leaders of the present Jerusalem in his day, a real city where there was a real temple. There were real high priests, a whole sacrificial system, and even a Sanhedrin council, kind of like a Senate or a Congress, right? So this was a very real thing. This was the earthly nation that not long ago had Jesus uh, crucified and condemned for blasphemy. So this was a very real for Paul. This is a, you, you either were a part of this or you weren't. And, in, and with that in mind, it's really important for us to understand how explosive this whole passage would have been in Paul's day. Without question, Jews knew that they were descended from Sarah. They were not descended from Hagar. In their minds, this was the whole point of their nation. The credibility of their nation depended on it. And Paul is basically taking that and he's flipping the whole thing on its head. He's saying, mm, nah, right? not really. In a spiritual way, he's saying, every Jew who does not trust in Christ alone is like a son of Abraham through Hagar. They're sons, but they're God's slave children. They won't actually inherit anything when all is said and done because they have not been crucified with God's real firstborn son, Jesus, and Christ is not living in them by faith. They have not become members of his body. And Paul is saying to these Galatians, guys, those are the kinds of sons you will be if you depart from faith in Christ and try living under the law like this. You'll be the wrong kind of sons. You'll be part of the wrong kind of family because you're focused on the flesh. You're trying to be part of God's earthly nation. You may be sons of God's if, if you do that in one sense, but you'll be his slave children. You won't be his free children. And by contrast, Paul says, but the Jerusalem above is free. And she, he says, she is our mother. She's the one who gave birth to us. Now, by above, Paul clearly means in heaven, right? That is the dwelling place of God. He is talking as if there is a whole different kind of Jerusalem. There is a whole different kind of Israel, a different kind of family that we need to be born into in a different kind of way, not according to the flesh at all but according to the power of God, through the power of his spirit, by faith in his son. In other words, these local churches the Galatians were gathered into, here on earth, were actually a heavenly family that were ultimately the result of something God is doing. They're not just earthly religious things. You can't be born into these local churches. In fact, there's nothing, anything you can do with your flesh here on earth to get into these local churches. We have to be born again in this heavenly sort of way to get into the family in any real spiritual way. And that's the point if you look with me at verse 27. Paul here in verse 27 is quoting a prophecy from the book of Isaiah 
And Isaiah is trying to encourage the Israelites in this book during a time where they were sort of cast out in, 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 in exile. And he does that by reminding them where the nation came from to begin with. He says, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one. And this almost certainly refers back to Sarah. Israel is the children of Sarah, the old lady who had no business bearing any children. Those children will be more, he says, than those of the one who has a husband. In other words, the story of Israel was never about the strength of their bodily lives. The story of Israel was never about their ability to multiply themselves. No, the whole thing began with an elderly guy and his barren wife. It was always God who was raising up this earthly family into a nation to begin with. So again, this was never just been about Abraham's family and their bodily lives. Never. It's always been about God creating a different kind of family for his own purposes. And here's the point. We will never see it that way, never, unless we have this heavenly perspective of God's family. We never will. And the same is true today. Uh, if we assume that this family depends on us and our flesh, that it's basically just an earthly thing that we can control, we will miss the entire point. And we may even be part of the wrong family. We may think we're even God's sons, but we may be the wrong kind of sons. We may be his slave sons. There's something bigger. There's something deeper. There's something heavenly going on here. And so here's our takeaway today in, in this sense. I think one of the takeaways is that not everyone who thinks they're a son of God really is a son of God, at least not in this ultimate spiritual sense, right? Right? Now, especially today, when it comes to Christianity, uh, this is one of the biggest barriers for many people. Uh, we do not like the idea that there is a specific spiritual definition of what it means to be a Christian, to be in Christ. Uh, we do not like the idea that spiritual conversion is actually necessary, a real inner transformation for every person, and, and that it really matters how that conversion works and that we discern if it has worked, if people are really born again. We don't like to think this way because as soon as we start defining what it means to be a Christian and we start thinking that we know what people need to believe in order to become part of God's heavenly family, all of a sudden it puts us in this position where we might have to disagree with other people. Uh, we, we might have to exclude certain people, even that we really like. And, and frankly, it's, it's, that's just really uncomfortable, right? We have to actually live as if these invisible heavenly things are real. And without fail, some will object to that. Uh, some will accuse us of being foolish, of being arrogant even, of being closed-minded. And in many ways, you have to just admit, like, it's understandable. I, I understand why this seems daunting to us and why it's hard for many to embrace. And without a doubt, there are some very unwise and even unchristlike ways to kind of try and sift through people and really not honor each person made in God's image. It's not what we're talking about here, but could it be that we find this so daunting and so difficult because our perspective is too earthly? Could it be that we need this heavenly perspective Paul's talking about. 
Clearly, according to Paul, to be a true member of these local churches, you cannot just show up to the services. You cannot just give some money. You cannot just get dunked in water and call yourself a Christian. Unless these things are done by faith in the crucified, risen Son of God, unless they are done by spirit-filled people who have been crucified in their lives in the flesh and who Christ is living through, none of it will have any eternal significance. More importantly, none of it will actually make anyone a spirit-filled child of God at all. It will all be a bunch of empty, meaningless religion that has no power to justify or deliver anyone. And in that sense, it is not wise or loving at all to allow others to just sort of define Christianity for themselves is not loving to disregard specific truths of God's gospel revealed in this book, or just to assume that whoever says they're a Christian really is a Christian as if it's just a religious thing or cultural thing, and there's nothing spiritual about it. We have to know and we have to discern the difference between those who are in Christ and those who are not. And in much the same way, we will never see it that way. We will never go about the life and ministry of our church in this way if we do not have this heavenly perspective of God's family. Paul explains why he does it this way in in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5. I want to read this for us. It's really helpful. He says he does it this way because the love of Christ controls us. (laughs) Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, that's Jesus, and therefore all have died. It's as if our earthly lives in the flesh, they're over. And then he says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he says, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. He says, the new, behold, the new has come. And so the point is this, this is how we have to regard those who are closest with us. This is how we have to regard our neighbors, our coworkers. This is how we have to regard newcomers and visitors who who join us on Sunday mornings and visit our church, not just as people with bodily human lives looking for the right religious experience, but as God's image bearers in need of faith in his resurrected son and the new life that really does come as a result. So this is Paul's argument. God's always had two different kinds of sons. We're the heavenly ones, not just the earthly ones. And here's his appeal. He says, we have to be very clear about which family we're a part of. This this is kind of brings it down to earth and helps them see what this means. In In verse 28, Paul turns his focus to the Galatians, and he reassures them, now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. And then he makes another connection to Genesis 21. He says, but just as at the time, at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Think think of Ishmael kind of laughing and taunting Isaac, right? In other words, apparently these missionaries who were causing trouble in Galatia were actually persecuting other church leaders like Paul who were gathering Gentiles into churches without forcing them to be circumcised. And Paul's saying, listen, if you want to know who God's earthly slave children are, it's the ones who are persecuting his heavenly free children. 
And this is how it's always worked, even back in the days of Ishmael when he taunted Isaac. Uh, and then his descendants grew up to be the archenemy of Israel, right? So chances are the persecution of these missionaries is one of the primary reasons, the motivations that led the Galatians to embrace this theology, to be circumcised, and to live under the law. They knew if they didn't, then these missionaries who were professing Christians would have persecuted them, and they really, deep down, were trying to avoid being persecuted. But instead, Paul points them back to the law yet again and gives them a better solution. He says, but what does the Scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 21, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. In other words, in the exact same way that Abraham cast out Hagar and Ishmael in order to make it crystal clear who was and was not part of the family back then, you guys have to cast out these missionaries. Uh, Which is to say, you need to cut ties with them. You need to make it clear they are not actually part of this heavenly family of God that he's creating in his son, and they never will be until they stop relying on their bodily lives in the flesh and they start relying on his resurrected life. But again, we have, to, we have to understand how explosive this would have been, okay? Paul, who was Jewish by birth, is telling these Galatians who were not Jews, they were Gentiles by birth, to cast out these Jewish-born professing Christians and write off the entire nation of Israel as if they, these Jews who were actually descended from Sarah, were actually slave children who were descended from Hagar. I mean, just imagine how this conversation would have gone. For the Galatians, hey, missionaries, you know, I know we said we'd go along with this circumcision, obedience to the law thing, but we've had a change of heart. Uh, We don't think God wants us to do that anymore. And uh, we actually have to kick you out of our churches uh, because we don't think that you are actually God's children. I know, I know, right? You're descended from Abraham, I get it, but we think you've actually misunderstood the entire point of your nation and its religion. We do understand it, and it turns out all along the whole thing was all about your God redeeming us into this new heavenly family. So, oh man, so uh, get out, right? Wow. I want you to notice for Paul, it is not just enough for the Galatians to know that they are God's heavenly sons. I want you to notice the solution for Paul was not just to, oh, I guess we'll give up on this whole local church thing because, I don't know, the church is universal anyways, right? No, the solution was to cast out these missionaries. It was to make it clear who is in the family and who is not in the family. And the reason for this is because the sons of, of slave children do not inherit with the sons of the free women. In other words, there is a real inheritance at stake here. This is all heavenly, that's true, but it's also real. There is a real earthly community that God is delivering out of this present evil age. It is not the earthly nation of Israel. The capital city of it is not the present Jerusalem that you can Google on Google Maps here on earth. You cannot be born into it in any physical way or join it through circumcision or obedience to the law. This new heavenly family Paul's talking about is the church of Jesus Christ, is made up of spirit-filled people from all nations 
who are born again in this spiritual way by faith alone in Christ alone, who have been set free from the law and gathered together in these local churches. It is the members of these gospel-dependent local churches on earth who will inherit all of creation in Christ. And so here's the takeaway for us as well. It really matters that God's heavenly sons are gathered together in local churches. It really matters. Now, to some extent, yes, we have to be willing to say our churches on earth will never be an exact representation of God's spiritual family in heaven. Paul's freely admitting that. He's helping us, frankly, to untangle that and think well about that. He's told us there will be false brothers, right? Today, there will be true Christians who aren't part of any church at all. That's true. We can see here and, and throughout most of the New Testament, these churches have been really messy and complicated from Jump Street, right? Even the first few decades of this whole project. But that does not mean that we're free to sort of set these local churches aside and to live the Christian life on our own. Because as flawed as we are, as flawed as our churches will be, God is redeeming real people in a heavenly way, and he is gathering them into real churches here on earth. The spirit-filled members of these churches form the body of Christ, his son, and it is that body that will inherit all things. Now, these days, we do not tend to think of real churches with this kind of heavenly perspective. We don't. So what happens is, instead, usually we tend to think of them and treat them as if they are earthly nonprofit organizations. And, and this is why I'm convinced so much of what I'm saying here sounds very strange to many of us, I'm sure, and even maybe a little heretical, is this idea that you have to actually be a Christian in a real spiritual way to be a member of, of any church. You can't just sign up. <laughs> now, we talk about this a lot at Redemption, and we have through this series especially. This is why we practice and we're committed to meaningful church membership at Redemption. And, and by the way, this is what we mean by meaningful church membership. We see membership as a truly heavenly thing, a spiritual thing that's rooted in, in Christ himself. We are just convinced by Scripture that churches really are spiritual families that God is creating. And when we gather and when we participate in the life and ministry of our church here on Sunday mornings and our members' gatherings even, we really are participating in something heavenly and something eternal even. But I really hope you can see that this is not just some compelling idea that I came up with. <laughs> I, I hope you can see this is not some new, interesting take on how to do church better these days. It is a life passion for me. It really is. I'm convinced it's one of the most vital things for the church to recover in the modern world. No question. But there's nothing new about this idea at all. In fact, it's incredibly old and even ancient Clearly, it goes back to the Apostle Paul in his ministry, and, and even he then traces the roots of these churches all the way back to Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. Now, what is new is this radical kind of individualism that makes us sort of just by default almost feel entitled to enjoy all the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection without being an actual member of really anything at all. I've studied this a great deal. Uh, for what it's worth, as far as I can tell, uh, 
That idea of being a member of, of, of Christ, being in Christ without being a member of a church, as far as I can tell, is less than 100 years old. It's less than 100 years old. I actually have a few quotes from prominent theologians throughout the history of the church to kind of show us this, okay? Uh, here's one from Cyprian of Carthage in the third century, okay? He says, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. And here he is actually commenting on, I think, the passage we're looking at today, Galatians 4. Now, for some of you, I want to acknowledge this. There may be a barrier to thinking of real churches in this way because of the damage that has been done throughout church history, very legitimately, as a result of men idolizing the church. It's very understandable, and that's a very real concern we need to be aware of, absolutely. For example, around the time of Cyprian, the Catholic church began to organize itself as if it, this earthly institution, was the one true universal church, and it even taught that there was no such thing as salvation apart from the institution of the Catholic church, right? So on one hand, we should say, we look back at church history, we should not be surprised for a big swath of it, people thought the church was essential, probably in some unhelpful ways. But on the other hand, some might say, well, see, that's the problem. The, the church can become the whole point. And that's why we needed the Reformation. Now that we've had that, we're kind of free from all that, and we could just watch the live stream, right? Not quite, uh, not quite. All of the reformers had this same high view of the church as well. In fact, the point of the Reformation was to reform the church, uh, is to ensure that it was actually a heavenly thing and not just an earthly thing. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, says it this way in the 16th century. He says, he who refuses to be a son of the church desires in vain to have God as his father. It seems like he agrees with Cyprian, might have been, been reading some Cyprian. And it's not just the early original reformers who thought this way about local churches. Uh, here are, is an extended quote from Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century. This is uh, actually from a sermon that he wrote in 1878 called What the Church Should Be. Now, let's sit back and take this in because this is good. And he's a Baptist too. That's really great. All right. He says, the church is not a number of unregenerate people. There's people who are not spiritually born again in this way. It's not just a group of them coming together entirely of their own notion to defend such and such dogmas. Such persons may form a club, but they cannot make a church. There must be a coming together of renewed men in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and these must meet for purposes which God himself ordains and be joined together after his own fashion. He says, happy are we if we are members of that church, yea, members of Christ himself by the living faith which unites us to the living God. Never let us speak disrespectfully of the church of God, nor think of her with anything other than love and with intense devotion to her interests, for she belongs to God. And he ends this way, he says, the church of God, is the sole place of God's true worship. He is spiritually worshiped nowhere else. <laughs> so I hope we can see in the New Testament, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, throughout all of church history, it has been so important for God's true heavenly sons to be gathered into real earthly churches. This is the, the result of the gospel. And clearly, 
throughout church history, Christians have cared deeply that these churches were made up of true heavenly sons who were filled with the Spirit, who believed in the gospel. So why on earth do we not have this kind of reverence and passion for the church today? Could it be that we've been bewitched into thinking these local churches are just earthly organizations? Could it be that we think we are creating these communities by the power of our flesh rather than God? Could it be that we need to recover this heavenly perspective of God's promised family? I think it may be. And to that end, let's pray now that God would give us this heavenly perspective as a church. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have sent your son to die, to atone for our sins, to rise again to new and everlasting life. We thank you that by stopping our reliance on our flesh and relying on his, we can be adopted into him as heavenly sons. And we pray more than that today, that you would help us to go about the life and ministry of our church with these truths in mind. Would this be how we think about what we're doing now? Would this be how we think about our members gathering next Sunday? Would this be how we think about our love and care for one another in your body? We pray now in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.